Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. My name is Stephanie Vlakis, and I'm an expert certified fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist, a multiple award-winning virtual fertility and pregnancy nutrition clinic serving thousands from around the world, and of course, the host of this pod, Fertility Friendly Food. This podcast is dedicated to all things health and nutrition in the world of fertility, reproductive health, and pregnancy. Each week, I bring you practical snack-sized episodes to help improve your lifestyle on your trying-to-conceive journey, alongside guest expert interviews to help inspire you to learn and grow whilst you grow your family. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. This week is our 100th episode. OMG, I feel like we need some kind of confetti noise effect, sound effect. We don't have that much production value around here, so pretend. But thank you for being here for 100 episodes, whether you've listened to one or all 100 You binge listeners hold a special place in my heart. Thank you for tuning in each week to learn about all things reproductive health, fertility, and pregnancy, nutrition, and health. And this week's topic is all about recurrent implantation failure, or RIF, which is a very clinical term, but we will dive into what this actually means. But this is an absolute must-listen for those of you who are undergoing IVF and struggling with that implantation or transfer phase working for you. So this is you know, everything to do with implantation and the two-week wait is by far our most popular forms of content on our blog, uh, Foods for Implantation e-guide, our previous episode with Kay about Foods for Implantation. They're always the most popular. Every single time we do an Insta Q&A, someone's asking about implantation and the two-week wait. So tune in, listen up and get all the insights into some considerations for recurrent implantation failure with our team dietitian, Kaylee. Welcome back to the pod, Kay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Steph. I'm very excited to be on episode 100. I that know. Awesome. That was an um, accident. I can't believe we're here. Happy one. <laughs> happy accidents around here. We do, we do. Especially if they result in pregnancies. They're the best kind of happy accidents. Exactly. People are surprised to know there's a lot of unplanned pregnancies that still happen even when you're kind of planning a pregnancy. You can sometimes get pregnant sooner than what you expect. So happy accidents are good accidents. And just before we get into this episode, Kay, we now have a question from our community. P.S., if you would like to submit a question to the pod, please fill in the 30-second question form that's always linked in the show notes for you. We love receiving them. We love answering them for you in this format rather than our one-minute Instagram story. So I thought we could uh, put our heads together on this one, Kay. How important is focusing on your diet for implantation versus, say, for eggs or sperm or ahead of, say, an egg collection in the context of IVF? I would argue that they're just as important as each other. You know, it's like picking a favorite child. No one can do that. (laughs) So, yes, I would argue that they're both as important. Obviously, you know, we need to make sure we have good quality eggs to make a good quality embryo because that will mean that you'll be more likely to result in a positive pregnancy. However, it's also really important to make sure that we are focusing on our diet 
for implantation, whether that be, you know, doing a couple little things that are going to improve our chances of a successful implantation, or whether it be focusing on, you know, food safety for the two-week wait. Yeah, I would argue that let's not pick a favorite. Let's try and make sure that through the preconception period, we are focusing on improving our diet yeah, throughout the entire time. What do you think, Steph? Yeah, I think like what we know about fertility and nutrition, we know more than what we knew five, 10 years ago, but we're still in the early stages of understanding all the different ways it's impacting conception, particularly in IVF where we can isolate things like egg, sperm, embryo, implantation, whereas in nature we wouldn't have visibility of these types of things and it's all kind of happening all in the one place or at the one time with no kind of information about how if we change A, B, C or D, what happens. And so certainly I see probably a people disproportionately focusing on the implantation bit and forgetting the egg and sperm bit. And so I think we always need to shift the discourse to making sure that you're preparing the eggs and sperm as best as you possibly can. Now, in some situations, you don't have control over this. So for example, clients who've created, you know, frozen eggs years ago or frozen sperm years ago due to cancer treatments or elective egg freezing, for example. So in those situations, we just work with what we've got. But for those people who are doing, say, like IVF from scratch, the best time to intervene is actually those one to three months prior to that egg collection, ideally three months or more if you've got particular medical history and so on for both the eggs and the sperm, because that will ultimately translate to an improved chance of implantation. But more and more research, as Kay's going to talk about, is coming to light about the uterine environment and how we should be aiming to support that and how that is playing a role in potential delays to conception or issues with IVF success and so on. So I think we're going to continue to see the emergence of the significance of diet for implantation, particularly with things like the immune system and also inflammation, as well as the reproductive microbiome as well. So look, I think they're pretty equally stacked, but I see people paying far more attention disproportionately to implantation and kind of forgetting the egg and sperm bit, which is you know, probably needs a little bit of equalizing. All right. I hope that answered your question, dear listener. Let's get into the pod all about recurrent implantation failure. So Kay, what is implantation? What does this word mean? So for those that don't know, implantation is basically when a fertilized egg, sperm meets egg, they fertilize, travels down the fallopian tube towards the uterus and attaches itself to the uterine wall burrowing in the endometrium. Obviously, during the IVF journey, the embryo's journey to endometrium will look a little different and will obviously not meet what they'll meet outside of the body, which is exciting. So yes, that'll look a little different. But basically, implantation is when the fertilized egg attaches to the endometrium. So when we start thinking about recurrent implantation failure, the definition of RIF, I'm going to continue using that word throughout the pod, just to shorten it a little, is three or more failed IVF attempts with good quality embryos. And that kind of goes into what Steph was talking about before. You know, we need to make sure that we really do have the best quality eggs and the best quality embryos that we can, because that'll also improve our chances implantation success. 
So yes, the definition of RIF is three or more IVF attempts with good quality embryos. And the failure of embryo implantation can be a consequence of a variety of different things. It might be uterine, it might be male factor, it could be the embryos, it could even be a specific type of IVF protocol that might not be right for you. And there are also other things that can impact implantation in general, and they might be endometriosis or adenomyosis, specifically due to having a higher inflammatory environment. They might also be fibroids. So fibroids are non-cancerous lumps of tissue which are found in the uterus. And fibroids are really common and rarely cause many issues, but sometimes it can depend on where they're actually sitting. So if they're in the wrong spot, that can result in implantation failure. Also something called endometritis. So I'll talk about this a bit more later in the podcast, but this is an inflammatory condition of the lining of the uterus. And most commonly, it's caused by some sort of infection, so something like tuberculosis or a, an NSDI, so a sexually transmitted infection. Maternal age can come into it. Also immune and autoimmune conditions, so something like celiac disease or lupus, diabetes, so type 1 diabetes specifically, or multiple sclerosis, for example. And it's really because these are associated with chronic inflammation, which might prevent implantation. Then weight management might come into this, and this is whether it be on the higher or the lower end of the spectrum. So, for example, high numbers of fat cells called adipocytes can trigger inflammatory responses, and this can be linked to increased rates of implantation failure. But also having you know, too little fat cells and a really low body weight can also affect the thickness of our uterine lining, and that can affect implantation as well. And then also endometrial receptivity. So, I'm going to talk a lot more about the microbiome, so the vaginal microbiome, and then I'll talk about endometritis as well at the end. So interestingly, we had a study that was conducted in 2021, and they found that there are often impairments in the vaginal and each endometrial bacterial communities that may be linked to RAF recurrent implantation failure. And they actually found that there were higher rates of bacterial vaginosis in those experiencing RAF as well. So I'm going to go into a bit more detail into these as well. So basically looking at the research, we found a study that was conducted in 2020. And this one started looking at the vaginal microbiome of people with unexplained RAF. And they also used people who achieved a clinical pregnancy in their first frozen embryo transfer as a control group. So the word microbiome, for those that may not know, refers to a community of microbes. And this can include bacteria, viruses, or fungi. And they exist within and on our bodies as well. So they can be in our gut, they can be in our skin, they're in breast milk, and also throughout the vagina. So essentially, our vaginal microbiome is where a community of microbes live. And they go all the way from the cervix to the external anatomy of the vulva as well. So pretty much they're everywhere. And the vaginal microbiome is a complex little ecosystem, and it's made up of more than 200 bacterial species. So basically, we see that people's vaginal microbiomes can also differ in terms of the diversity of the species, and this is what has been shown to affect RAF which is just so interesting. So with that going into, you know, an abundance of confusing information about bacterial communities that would be unnecessary to know, 
basically, I'm just going to kind of explain the differences. So studies have shown that there are significant differences in the vaginal microbiota and metabolomes between patients with unexplained RAF and women who became pregnant in the first frozen embryo transfer. So as an example of some of those species, we saw that people who experienced RIF had a lower relative abundance of lactobacillus, lactobacillus, however you want to pronounce that. I might be butchering these pronunciations. So if there are any uh, you know, people that work in this area, I am so sorry. And also in the, so yes, there was a lower relative abundance of lactobacillus or bacillus in the control group and also then in the control group, sorry, and a higher relative abundance of streptococcus. So basically, we found that people with RAF had lower lactobacillus and higher streptococcus than people who achieved a clinical pregnancy in the first frozen embryo transfer. So these are just two of the strains, but overall, there were 19 strains that were significantly different between the two groups. So if we actually think of what to do about this, obviously, there's going to be more and more research coming out to explain, you know, what can be done from a nutrition perspective. But if you are one of these people who have experienced RIF, it might be worth thinking about probiotic supplementation prior to your next transfer, whether it be fresh or frozen. But just know before running off to the pharmacy and grabbing you know, the first thing off the shelf, not all probiotics are the same. And it's really important to get individualized recommendations from your health professional based on your medical history, your dietary intake. So yes, don't run off to the pharmacy and grab a probiotic. Get some advice based on you know, yourself. So interestingly as well, among the strains that were increased in people with RAF, Many of them are also the main pathogens for something called bacterial vaginosis or BV. And these were strains such as Gardnerella and Prevotella. Again, sorry about the pronunciation. So for those that don't know what BV is, basically it refers to an imbalance in the vaginal microbiome that creates symptoms which might include like a foul or a foul smelling fishy odor, maybe vaginal itching, so being really itchy down there burning during urination, which can easily be mistaken for you know, a UTI or urinary tract infection. And for some people, they're completely asymptomatic. So in terms of what causes BV, the exact cause is unclear. So again, for some people, that could be completely random, but it's thought that some things can increase your risk. So for example, having unprotected sex, you know, which is difficult when you're trying to fall pregnant naturally, obviously. Having sex with a new partner for the first time or sex with multiple partners and douching as well. And they're thought that these things may alter the balance of the bacteria in the vagina. So if we're thinking just, you know, on a general level from a nutrition perspective, ways to try and keep our vaginal microbiome and, you know, overall microbiome in our body healthy, incorporating foods that are rich in prebiotic fiber. So prebiotics are the type of dietary fiber that can feed our friendly bacteria. So it's much like the soil to plants. And these foods, fruits, veggies, legumes, beans, nuts, seeds, so, you know, a lot of things that we promote here on the podcast and in session with our clients all the time. And then also trying to incorporate some foods that are rich in probiotics as well. And these probiotics basically provide extra healthy bacteria to our microbiome, and that can be to our gut microbiome, which can then also aid in our vaginal microbiome composition as well. 
So if we think about it, these are like the flowers or the plants themselves in the garden rather than just the soil. And these can include foods like yogurt or kefir and also fermented foods. So things like sauerkraut or kimchi or kombucha. But just keep in mind, you know, if you're going through IVF, some of these foods may not be appropriate for pregnancy or the two-week wait. So yeah, it would be worth just getting a good understanding of what foods are safe during pregnancy and the two-week wait as well. Okay, endometritis. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I'm going to touch on endometritis as well, which is essentially an inflammation and infection of the uterus. So some symptoms to look out for might be a bit of swelling in the abdomen, um, any abnormal uterine bleeding, any unusual vaginal discharge. So we're not talking about your normal you know, cervical mucus here, anything that's a bit out of the ordinary that you notice, sometimes pelvic pain and abdominal discomfort as well. And commonly, a person with endometritis might also get some sort of constipation or uncomfortable or painful bowel movement as well. You know, it's, it's hard as well because a lot of these symptoms, symptoms of things like endometriosis and adeno. So yeah, if you get anything that's kind of out of the ordinary, it would be worth just checking in with your doctor. So some common causes, again, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, SDIs, so something like chlamydia or gonorrhea or something like tuberculosis, even can be infections resulting basically the mixture of your vaginal microbiome being altered. So for example, after childbirth as well, you know, our um, vaginal microbiome can be um, altered a little bit. Some medical procedures can also increase our risk. So, for example, placing an IUD, so the intrauterine device, something like Marina, for example, or even having a hysteroscopy. But generally, being an infection, endometritis can be resolved pretty easily with antibiotics. And the issue really arises when we don't treat it or if we don't know we have it, and therefore it goes untreated. So interestingly as well, there was a study done last year in 2020 two that found that the composition of endometrial microorganisms in chronic endometritis and those in people with non-chronic endometritis were significantly different. So again, comes back to the whole microbiome thing as well. And also, you know, this condition is characterized by inflammation. So what we recommend from a nutrition perspective is to try and follow an anti-inflammatory diet. So when thinking of an anti-inflammatory diet, some of my top tip, firstly, to think your diet as a whole and not really single out specific foods. So rather than you know saying, oh, one food is quote unquote inflammatory, it's really important to think about our whole dietary pattern and what we're eating over the day and over the week as well, rather than yeah, picking one or two foods that are going to be an issue. My second tip is to eat the rainbow. You've probably heard me and Steph and Candace <laughs> talk about this all the time. And we love this one. But basically, it's about getting a wide range of antioxidants into your body through the foods we eat. So we have many different antioxidants. And basically, our key food sources are to have a wide range of colorful fruits and veggies, also herbs and spices, and including extra virgin olive oil into your diet as well. And then also to increase your intake of omega-3 fatty acids. So our best sources of omega-3s are marine sources, so salmon, mackerel, and anchovies. However, if you don't eat fish, you may want to consider supplementation. But again, always do so under the care of your health professional. Again, not all omega-3 supplements are the same. And just some other things to consider um, to reduce inflammation are to reduce intakes of saturated and trans fats. 
So, you know, if we think a lot of our more indulgent foods, chocolate, crisps, hot chips, that kind of thing, they would be higher in saturated fat. So trying to reduce them as much as possible and also reducing high levels of excess sugar. So again, with these foods, it's not about avoiding them. It's definitely not what we're saying, but it's to just try and make sure that they're included in your diet um, in a healthy way. So not in excess. You can also get some more tips on implantation nutrition, like Steph said, all the way back in season two, I think it was episode 15. And this is called Foods for Implantation, which I think is one of our most downloaded episodes to date. So yes, in this episode, we go through dietary tips such as increasing whole grains and vitamin E rich foods, beetroot, folate, and there's a whole lot of other things that we go through in this episode. So yeah, definitely go and listen to that one. And we also have a lot more in information about anti-inflammatory eating in our masterclass, which I will get Steph to talk about now. Yeah. And we also have our enhancing implantation masterclass as well. So we've got a couple of masterclasses that may be relevant to those of you who are in this spot of recurrent implantation failure. So our enhancing implantation masterclass is a 45-minute session delivered by yours truly. And I talk through in detail implantation nutrition strategies from just optimizing general uh, implantation, but then there is a section on recurrent implantation failure. We do also touch on supplements, but it's in a very generalized way, as in we can't recommend what could be right for you in that kind of format. And it also includes our super popular foods for implantation e-guide as well. If you have endometriosis, for example, and you already have an like an inflammatory condition like endo or adeno, and you've got implantation issues, you may want to also team that up with the anti-inflammatory eating for endo masterclass, which talks you through, you know, what is the data about anti-inflammatory eating and how can you apply that to your life? And then also busting some common myths about anti-inflammatory eating from can I eat gluten, can I eat dairy, can I eat any sugar, what about alcohol, caffeine, all that kind of stuff. So it's quite practical and hands-on and they're short, sharp and effective and they give you your downloadable tools that you need. So I'll leave those linked for you both down below. Thanks, Kay. I wanted to add a couple of little tidbits because A lot of recurrent implantation failure that we see is, yeah, I mean, sometimes we might not ever know the cause. Like sometimes we do find out the causes are bacterial like BV or endometritis, which requires like an endometrial biopsy to be done. Or we may just find out that the uterine lining isn't really responding really well to the hormones in preparation for a transfer. So sometimes it's a medical thing. There's lots of different potential reasons. And so when we're talking about RAF, there's a degree of we want to understand why, but there's also a potential that we may not know and we may just need to apply strategies to try however we can. And it can be quite challenging mentally uh, as well because you're putting all this energy into creating quality embryos and adequate embryos to transfer and then it can feel really disheartening to consistently have them not stick around. So it's much more complex than just your diet, obviously, just like anything that we talk about. It's just one piece of the puzzle. But I think it's important to know that there's lots of different potential reasons that 
could extend beyond the immediate uterine environment. It could be you have an autoimmune condition that has never been diagnosed. And so those wider whole body kind of things need to be looked at as well. So making sure your doctor is on the same page as you, you've got somebody uh, supporting you through that is so, so important. So recurring implantation failure really does suck. It, we do manage a fair bit of it in our practice and we do typically see like a higher rates of these types of concerns crop up in alignment with what the research is kind of telling us. And I imagine that this research is going to continue to emerge and give us more information about what's going on as well. So thanks, Kay, for joining us for another ep. It's great to have you. Thank you very much. Yeah, such an interesting topic to research and to talk about. And yes, it really, really does suck. So we, we're here for you and we do, you know, see a lot of people in our clinic that this is happening to. So we understand how difficult it is. Yeah, it's a real tough one. But when we get the good news that it does stick, it is a very satisfying win, that one. <laughs> one of my favorites. So thanks again, everyone, for joining us for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast streaming platform, whatever you're listening to right now. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This makes such a difference to our podcast, reaching more people. And don't forget to share it with someone who would find it useful as well. I will leave all the resources we mentioned in the show notes for you and we will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast, acknowledges the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognises the continuing connections to lands, waters and community. We pay our respects to First Nation cultures and to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all First Nations people tuning in today. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation.